What's good guys, Ross Potter here and this is the RP Coaching Podcast where we'll talk about training, nutrition, mindset and everything in between. Created with you in mind, this podcast aims to educate and help you to tick those boxes daily. If you do enjoy the content, show me a little love, subscribe and share. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, guys, to the RP Coaching Podcast, and today is a slightly different episode. I'm joined by Terry Lewis, but today is going to cover something a little hard-hitting and um, one that I'm sure is going to um, touch, uh, touch a few home truths. Um, it's a pretty raw episode, so stay tuned. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Terry, um, we're going to get into some pretty deep stuff today, and it's something that I feel... I want the the guys and the the listeners to understand that I want people to understand your journey because as we've talked about in the gym before when you've talked about this before you 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 don't like to talk about your story am I right yeah I, I feel like um I don't know I feel, I, I feel like I suppose the first thing I feel is there is always someone that's happening that's worse um why should I Sort of rabbit on about what's happened to me uh, and secondly i always think that, that why do people want to keep hearing me sort of bleating on about it i'll just, just get on with it yeah now now for the guys listening we're obviously going to get into the story and it is a a, a pretty real story there are two big incidents that have that have happened the, the main aim of this podcast for the listeners is i just want to highlight to you that no matter what you go through and no matter how hard life seems to get one, there is always someone worse off, but two, you can overcome anything with a strong mindset. And I think that's one thing that we're going to play on, especially during this episode, is just how mentally resilient you've probably become, having gone through so much um, of that kind of trauma um, over the last few years. So it all started when you lost your granddad. And at that time, you... Were you in rehab or had you been sent to rehab for, for drinking drugs? No, so um, to give a little bit of background to that, my granddad come from a military background, but also a sporting background. So um, him and his brothers, he had six brothers, um, they all competed at a high level in, um, in cycling, track cycling. Okay. Um, and my granddad always had a really sort of, um, just a passion for sports and also a passion for um, a physique basically he was always quite into like the like the bodybuilding look and um the power of it all the dedication of it all and whatnot um and then i lost my way a bit when he passed it was unexpected um and i was on just a constant cycle of uh, drinking drugs uh, i'm just going to be really straight and really um out front of all of this i would pretty much never be sober I'd, I'd drink through the night and then in the morning, sort of wake up, feel rough, be drunk again. My uni mates, um, I don't know if any of them would listen to this, would sort of come up and try and get me to lectures and I'd already be three, four beers in at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, I'd top myself up with cocaine, quite a lot of cocaine. Um, and I was just, uh, just spiralling. And then every time that I would sort of get so high whether it's on drinking drugs i would lose my temper and um 
I went out with my friends from home. We was going to Bournemouth for a night out, and uh, they all finished work at four o'clock or whatever, they're tradesmen. And I'd been drinking since eight o'clock in the morning, which are taking speed and cocaine. By the time they all finished work, we all went to the train station to go to uh, Bournemouth. And, um, well, I woke up in a police cell and I'd attacked someone unnecessarily, basically, um, which was very uncharacteristic of me as I am as a person normally sober, I won't myself at all. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump in there. Now I've I've only known you know I've I've known you I've known you a few years, Terry. It's only the last few kind of I'd say probably the last year I've I've got to know you better through the bodybuilding world. Um yeah. and I know just how passive Terry is as a person. We you know, it was only yesterday we were talking about kind of self-conscious and um we we're both in the same sort of boat in that respect. So having known Terry for only about a year, I can say that, yeah, this, this would have been completely out of your character. Yeah. I mean, in everyday life, I've got sort of a wife that I've been married to for four years and um, three kids and people that have known me for a long time and stuff. It, I don't really get irritated. I don't really get irritable. Uh, my, my moods are quite consistent. Um, and I'm thinking like, in everyday life, I'm quite peaceful, but um, at that time, I could not deal with my emotions. Um, I could not deal with, I suppose, the demons. And um, I was acting completely out of character. And that happened. And um, I remember the courts basically saying that you've got a problem, you're going to have to go to rehab. So they sent me to rehab. And um, hand on heart, it's the best thing I've ever done because it just, um, that was my first wake up call. My first wake up call. Um, in the, you need to sort of make the most out of what you're doing and you need to stay, take stock of everything that you have got. And at the time I was thinking of everything that I haven't got, which was my granddad. And to me, he was my world. Yeah. So, um, would you say, would you say a wake up call? When, when did it happen? Was it in the police cell? Was it at the courts? When, when did that kind of shock you and you, you had that, that big realization that things had to change? Um, a couple of things. It was kind of like an avalanche, if you like. When I um, woke up in the cell and they took me to the interview room, yeah. and I remember the police lady saying to me, um, what can you tell me about last night? And straight away that made me like, panic a bit, because I thought, oh, God, I, I don't actually remember anything. Okay. And then I remember her saying to her, okay, well, I'll give you a clue. She said, look at your knuckles, and they were all bleeding. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? And I, I couldn't believe it. And I was so, inside, I was so panicky. And I was thinking, like, just, just tell me, please just tell me what I've done. But she told yeah. me. Um, and then when I was in the court and they said to me that we should be giving you a year's imprisonment. And, um, oh God, I, I love, I love my freedom. I love sort of my own time, my own space. And I just thought, I, I, I can't, I can't be in a prison. I've got to do more. I've got to snap out of this and I've got to, I've got to change it. Yeah, fulfill, fulfill your life. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's when you found bodybuilding. Yeah, so that that sort of goes back to the the sort of the start of the story. I thought about um, you know when I said that the the counsellor in the rehab said to me to focus on what I do have rather than what I don't have. Um, I thought to myself, what I do have is the memories of my grandfather, sure. and they're great memories, and um, sort of the legacy that he left behind. I sort of had this um, this burning sort of desire. Well, I, I want to fulfil his legacy, and that sort of um, yeah, that sort of set me on this first path. 
if you like. So that's where the bodybuilding comes. So how long were you in the bodybuilding world, shall we say, before the first major incident happened, which we'll get onto shortly. Um, mm. I just want to give the listeners a little bit of background of just how how far you pushed yourself because obviously I think if I'm right in saying you were maybe one or two days out from your first ever show. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, and then and then we get hit with um some catastrophic um news. So talk us through that. So obviously you're you're in you're trying to relive your your granddad's memories you're trying to do him proud you're in the bodybuilding world you're prepping for your first show um what happens next well so the show was in june um but actually it goes back a bit before that is uh in january that year i um i went to the gym to train my chest and um i remember being on the smith press and I didn't feel great. And then I, I remember sitting up and um, Kurt, who works at the gym, said to me, Terry, don't look good, you look pale. Um, I went outside, obviously it was January, it was dark and cold and raining. And um, I sort of fell to the floor, had an epileptic seizure, I got epilepsy um, and broke my shoulder. So um, my goal was always to do the show in June. So when it had come round to um, prepping for that show, I was really far behind what the start of my prep should have been. So I was left with seven weeks to prep, um, but I wanted to do it and I was completely set mentally on doing it. And if I'm honest, I was, uh, I've got quite an obsessive brain, so I, I was obsessed with it. I was, I'm gonna do this show, sort of by hook or by crook, I'm doing it. Um, so I had seven weeks, I, I, I pushed hard, real hard. And, um, and I, I was pretty much ready. And then the day before the show, um, I remember I was outside in the morning talking to my next door neighbour who was fixing, fixing my fence. And, um, and I, I mean, Ross, I, I pushed myself into the ground with this show. I'd, I'd worked so hard. And I was talking to Paul and I was drinking my water and then I came inside. And I had my first breakfast, which was um, oats with banana. And then um, I, and it was June, it was hot, really hot. And, um, and I said to my wife, I said, Becky, I don't feel great again. And I started thinking I was going to have a seizure, an epileptic seizure. Um, I put a big warm sort of dressing gown on, slippers, t-shirts and whatnot. And I was still like, like shivering, like, like crazy cold. And, um, and with, my, with my epilepsy, I've got sleep deprived epilepsy. It's not flashing lights or anything like that. So if I don't get enough sleep, I'm at risk. So I thought to myself, okay, I'll go for a lay down, I'll go for a nap. So um, I said to Becky, all right, I'm going to go upstairs, I'm going to go for a nap. Um, and then, um, however long after, I don't know. Um, my... so just, just, just before we get into that, I just want to stress to listeners now, if you, if you are listening, you haven't done a prep um, of just how intensive a prep can be. Um, now, obviously, Terry would have been sleep deprived anyway because of the intensity of the prep, because we get something called sleep insomnia, which generally kicks in maybe one to two weeks out from a show whereby we just can't switch off because the only thing that's on our mind is the stage, the the posing, the training. And it's been having been there myself um, and pushed myself to the absolute extremes. Uh, I can sympathize with just how 
mentally draining and fatigued this is. And anyone listening who has competed before will know exactly what those dark days are like. But Terry, things went um, one step further for you um, mm. when you never woke up from that sleep. No, that's right. So um, after I went upstairs for the nap a couple of hours later, I think. Um, sorry, just before I went upstairs, when I was trying to talk, I was sounding like I was drunk. It was all just blurb. Yeah. Um, so I got upstairs for the sleep. And then um, my daughter, uh, my middle child, daddy's girl, and she was nice to check on me and stuff. And she's come up yeah. uh, to, to check on me because... Uh, Becky, my wife, told her I weren't feeling very well. And um, the, the room was full of blood. The walls were sprayed with blood. Blood, blood all over the carpets. I'm talking big puddles. Um, and I was on my back with my head tilted right the way back, almost like I'm um, laying on my, on my head rather than my neck, if you like. Sure. Um, and my whole body was making like a vibrating sound. She's, and I was completely pale. And she's run downstairs. And um, she said, oh, mommy, daddy's dead. And um, Becky's come up. And I was um, still choking on my own uh, blood. Because I'd bit pretty much a third of my tongue off. Well, I'd fallen, fallen back and hit my head. And um, so Becky's come up. She's thrown me on my side, um, which broke my shoulder again. <laughs> um, there's all the blood that's coming out. That's true love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, she sort of got it all out, if you like. Um, I was taken straight to hospital. And um, I started to sort of come round a bit. And I was talking, but not really making much sense and whatnot. This was roughly around three o'clock in the afternoon. Sure. Um, friends and family were there. Um, I don't remember any of it. And then um, 10 p.m., my wife left to come home. And um, she said I was quite stressed before she left because I didn't know where I was and why I was there. Yeah, of uh, course. And, um, so she's rang the, the hospital and said, I just want to check on my husband. I want to check um, that he's settled right because he's quite, quite confused. I said, yeah, what's your husband's name? She said, Terry Lewis. And they said, yeah. And then they hung up. So she rang back and said, oh, look, I think the line's cut, like, cut off. And they said, um, like, what's your husband's name? And she said, Terry Lewis again. They said, the words were, you need to get here now because he's gone. So um, Becky's mum's come round to see uh, babysit the kids. Becky's got straight to hospital. She gets there and I was, that's it. I was gone. I was, I was in a coma. And um, and as she got there, they was, uh, they, they'd closed the curtain so she couldn't get in. Um, all people around me, all the alarms were going off. I was completely sort of um, white and pale. And... At this time, again, she didn't know I was in a coma. She just thought I was gone because that's what she was told. Um, so she's looking through the gap in the curtain and they're ramming all the um, uh, ventilators down my throat and stuff. And um, yeah, for 14, literally for 14 days, she sat right by my side. And uh, yeah, it, it sort of unraveled more as it went on. So I went in to the coma with um, a, a flood on the brain. Um, my brain was full of water so that's what put me into the coma and then um, whilst I was in my body continued to urinate and I flushed all my sodium out so I then had a thing called hyponatremia which is fatal um, 
And then I then went on to develop sepsis in the coma, and then pneumonia in the coma, um, and then emphysema in the coma, which then stopped my lungs from working. So I was on 90, 96% uh, oxygen, but pretty much the ventilator was keeping me alive. Um, and, they, and then they said, to, they said to Becky after two weeks, they said that he's not responding to anything. He's getting more and more ill. His lungs are now stopping. Um, he's got two hours left to live. And then Becky said, um, you're going to turn the life, life support off. And they said, well, he's got a 15% chance of surviving this. So um, she sort of had to deal with all of that. And, which, uh, which I can imagine at the time for what we'd call then a single mum with the kids having mm. not had contact with you for two weeks, just the, obviously the last time she saw you, you were going up for a nap. Um, the amount of stress that she would have gone through. Um, I mean, to be honest, mate, you had it easy, didn't you? Because you just, you kind of yeah, laid for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's funny because when I, when I come out of it, um, I remember the hospital saying to me, do you, do you need any, um, I can't remember what they call it, basically post-traumatic help. Yeah, uh, and I remember saying to him, "I don't. I think my my wife does." Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I've slept. Now, most of us in our lifetime will will never experience anything as traumatic as that, and 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 I hope no one would have to go through that. And I'm sure if we got Becky on here, I'm sure there would be a lot of times she'd probably break down just because revisiting that would be so so uncomfortable for her, knowing that the father of her children and has been given two hours to live now when you came around uh, what if you can remember what what was going through your head did you think everything was fine did you know just how bad things had got no so what um this is actually quite it sounds unbelievable but bear with me when i first come around what well, i was in like a level four coma um it's quite common well, I don't know the statistics, but I was told it's quite common to have very, very lucid nightmares in the coma. Okay. So whilst I, was in, I remember having um, a dream that I was on like a, like a workbench and there was people around me cutting me open and taking my organs. And apparently whilst I was in the coma, I kept, um, my body kept sort of like jolting as if I was being hurt, as if I was being hit, even though I was asleep. Um, so when I first woke up, I saw these people around me and um, I panicked and I tried to take all the tubes out of my throat and because yeah. I thought that they were operating, like unnecessarily operating on me and taking my organs. Of course, that's, um, that's, something, we, that's something we see in films, isn't it? When, when, when the character wakes up and, and panics. Yeah, I, I, was, I was so confused by it all. Um, so they had to sedate me again. So um, a day later, I then woke up properly and more... Um, more with it and um i remember obviously i had this big tube down my throat and my tongue was um completely shredded to pieces from the initial initial sort of attack if you could call it that yeah um so i remember the doctor saying to me oh i'm still sure awake he said um he said do you know what's happened to you and i nodded but i couldn't speak because obviously i had the the tube in my throat and my tongue was sore and whatnot so i asked for a pen and paper um and on the, we've still got the, the sheets now. And on the sheets, I wrote um, uh, 
am I on the end bed? So he, he said, yeah. I said, have I been sleeping with my hands across my chest? And he said, yeah. I said, have my two main carers been Nepalese ladies? He said, yeah. Uh, and then I wrote, I said, I've seen it. And um, honestly, on my kid's life, at some point, but I don't know at what point it occurred, I saw it all, Ross. I, I was sort of, it's almost like I was up in the, ceil- uh, in the corner of the ceiling, looking down on myself, seeing this event occur. There's, um, there's been a lot of, um, <clears throat> a lot of people who have experienced one of those, I don't know what they call it, it's like an outer life experience. Outer body, yeah. Outer body experience. Um, and I think a lot of the time they, they resonate that with actually having died and then come back to life. Because there's, there's a lot of people I've heard of who've kind of said the same thing. Um, very, 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 very scary either way. Um, and the, the, the fun, Sorry to interlude, but the funny thing was, is I woke up on the Wednesday, yeah? On the Wednesday morning, um, my auntie, Carol, gave my mum a phone call and she said, oh, how's, how's Terry getting on? And my mum said, yeah, there's still no signs. And uh, Carol said, Janie's going to wake up today. And uh, my family are not spiritual or anything like that. They're, they're not. Uh, they're quite black and white. And um, my mum said, well, how do you know? And she said, because I had a dream last night and he was with dad, meaning my granddad. And my mum was like, oh, brilliant. And she said, no, she's yeah, not like that. Yeah, she just, said, um, Just what I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, she said, she said no, um, he was giving them back to us. And then, yeah, later that day I woke up. Inc- incredible. So who, know, who knows what happens? Is there a spiritual world? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I've never been spiritual myself. Um, but there was a lot of events that occurred in that, uh, let's say, two and a half week episode that, um, you know, if I was to try and give, science is based on theory and on logic. So if I was to try and give sort of like a, a scientific answer as to why I saw myself in the corner of the room, why my auntie had that dream on a day that I woke up, there's no real answer to it. Yeah maybe maybe an act of god maybe an act of god maybe it just simply wasn't your time um i'm i'm a great believer in that i do believe we all have our time and um i i purely would put it down to the fact that there was something in life that you need to to accomplish to achieve and um it wasn't your time so so an a, a crazy crazy and kind of really raw dramatic few weeks that, that you went through so you come out the other side um what happens then do you do you go back into the gym obviously with you being so frail and having gone through all that what what's the recovery time before you start to because you do get back to the gym um what's the recovery time and how do you most importantly how do you how do you find the mindset to bounce back yeah again there's a couple of things uh, and I think it's all about perspective, in my opinion. Everything's about perspective. Yeah. So um, the chap that was opposite me in the, in, in the um, intensive care unit, in ICU, there's six beds. Um, the lad that was opposite me, um, it was June the 17th, and um, I asked for um, an iPad from the ICU doctors to watch the England game, uh, <laughs> England versus Costa Rica. It's yeah. the warm-up for the World Cup. And... Um, I really wanted to watch it. So they gave me this iPad and then they said to me, but if you can play it with no sound on, they said, because um, at whatever time it was, I can't remember that completely, at seven o'clock, let's say, um, we're going to play um, some music for um, 
God, I can't remember his name now. The lad that was opposite me. Um, it was his end of life music. Right. And um, so that hit home straight away. I thought, God, I've, I've come out of this. And I'm sort of worrying about watching the football. And uh, the time come round and they put his playlist on. It was all sort of like Eminem music. Um, and I was listening to it and I was thinking, oh, God, this is terrible. And his girlfriend was in there and his dad and whatnot. And um, he was a car paint sprayer. He was 27 years old. And um, the fumes had pretty much stiffened up his lungs and he couldn't breathe anymore. So he, um, uh, I don't want to be disrespectful here. I'm just going to be honest. He, he choked to death for about a half hour when they turned the ventilator off. Uh, I, I heard it all. And um, but then obviously heard him pass because there was no more choking. And then um, I remember his dad then coming across to my bed and he said, can you give your wife this, please? And it was a, a car park ticket for the multi-story car park. It was a month ticket. He wow. said, I don't need it anymore. My son's gone. And um, I, I couldn't watch the game, obviously. Um, so I kept thinking about that. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. And it's sort of, um, I'm not a very emotional person. I'm really not. But I remember, like, that really, really hit home. And I thought, like, I've got, I know it sounds so cliche, but I remember thinking, I've got another chance. You know, he didn't. And he was 27, he was the same age as me. And um, yeah, that really hit home. And then um, when I got discharged, when I got back home, they said to me, look, you're going to be frail for a while because um, of the sepsis. The sepsis stays in your system for a long time. And, uh, and I remember I would try and walk, let's say, from my living room to my kitchen. It's like, oh, I don't know. 10 meters roughly um, and I would get like a third of the way and I couldn't breathe and I was falling back to the floor and I was so weak Ross like so weak um, but in my head that sort of anger I had when I was going through that sort of horrible stage with the rehab yeah had that but, but towards like, um, like I have to get better Do yeah you get what I mean and um, I'd sort of be shouting like, like come on come on you could do this and I and um and that was a battle in itself. And then every time I sort of passed the milestone, okay, I could walk 10 metres, straight away my head was like, okay, let's try 15 metres. You know, then, um, yeah, that was the progression. Yeah, so a real, a real sense of wanting to, to get back on the horse, shall we say. Um, I mean, even, even hearing that, I mean, I'm, I got choked up. Um, that's, that's pretty hard hitting. And to have been through the two, three weeks of, of intensive care and, and actually kind of leaving, leaving us and coming back and so then wake up and then have to endure listening to that. And, and, you know, for something so basic, like a car park ticket, I guess that held, I guess you could say that was probably your lifeline. The, the ticket to, That's so significant. To, to the ticket for you to go again at life and say, do you know what? This, you know, and, and like I said before, I'm a great believer that everything happens for a reason. And whether whether that was your your ticket, your cue to make the most of life, um, we'll never know. But for me, that that sounds like maybe it was just what was needed at that time. So you you come back stronger. Um, you you get back into the gym, and I, I want to move things on. Um, how long was it you were training? before we get hit again with another catastrophic event? 
In the so we're discharged on the 21st of June, uh, back home from ICU. Um, if I'm honest, I, I could not remember how long I was ill at home from the coma because it was such a blur. I would um, keep falling to the floor and falling asleep and then the kids would come over and think I was dead again. And it was like that for, if I remember rightly, about a month again. Okay. Um, but it's, it was a blur, so I don't know the answer to that. But yeah, yeah. Um, and then on November, November of that year, November the 17th, um, so what, June, let's say I was off a month, July, what is it, about three months, roughly? Um, I'd started to build up a bit of strength again, where I was able to do resistance training. Um, and again, I, my, my mentality at the time was, okay, what happened was um, a stumble. You know, it was a sort of a bump in the road, like, let's get on with it. You know, so that was my mentality. Um, however, I didn't account for what the sepsis had done to my body internally because I couldn't feel it anymore. Because I could walk and because I could lift weights, I didn't realise my body was still shot from the sepsis. So, um, yeah, November the 17th, um, I was driving to the gym and I got a voice note from a friend. He said, do you want to go and watch Bohemian Rhapsody at the cinema? And I thought, yes, I'm all over that, bit of Freddie yeah, Mercury. So um, I wanted to go in and I didn't want to push myself because um, I actually had my mind on the, the on film. The yeah, but not to say that I weren't sort of paying attention. Yeah. I just weren't going for an all out session. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. Um, I went in, I, I stretched upstairs, I warmed up upstairs um, and went downstairs, warmed up my legs on the leg extension, got over to the hack squat. Um, if I was to go for sort of a proper session and I was doing like my previous gym 260 kilos on the hack squat yep. normally for 10 to 15 reps on this day um, I had 175 on there 23 reps they felt fine I didn't see any issue there was no warning signs whatsoever and um, so I put another plate on to 200 kilo uh, went down for the first rep there was a bit of uh, just sort of tenderness, stiffness in my left knee. Which is, um, quite, which is quite normal. Very normal, so I didn't yeah. really pay much attention to it. I just sort of come up, reposition, uh, reposition my legs, um, sort of set myself again, and went down for the next rep. And I remember as I got sort of halfway down the rep, there was this feeling inside my body that I've never ever felt before, that if you go down, this, uh, this is not coming back up. Yeah, like it just felt like something weren't right, yeah? Um, so I thought to myself, no, not doing it. So as I went to come back up, as I said, about halfway, as I went to come back up, as I started to push back up, um, there was just a sound, about three or four of them. Or if you go outside and if you pick up a stick, like a thick stick, and snap it, it was that exact sound. Um, but it was like, <laughs> like that. And uh, my legs just pretty much just blew away from underneath me, both my legs. Um, were literally snapped in half and I just crumbled to the floor. Because I, I remember I remember at the time, um, I think I came in the next day to the same gym and um, everyone was talking and it was, oh my God, have you heard, you know, Terry's stuck in a hack, we were stuck in a hack squat, it took X amount of hours to get him out and it's not looking good. And and at this time, I hadn't, I hadn't quite understood the severity of what you'd already been through. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the, the mood in the gym was, was pretty, uh, it wasn't good. Um, one, you know, when one of the lads is, is taking another hit and everyone's kind of wondering what's going to go on, it's always, um, it's always tough to hear. So what happened? Yeah, so what had happened um, is above the knee, you've got a tendon that connects the kneecap to your quadricep muscles, um, obviously, obviously on both legs, that's the mechanics of the legs. Basically, both tendons had fully ruptured. They were gone, they were off the knee. Um, what that meant was the quads were released off the bone um, and they were up, both of my quads were up by my hips. Um, in bunches, so my, my muscles had come off the bone, the tendons had, had, had blown up, they were gone, my kneecaps were hanging down by the sides of my legs, um, and the muscles ruptured, so the, the surgeon um, said, uh, he said, you know what a fray bent those pie is? I said, yeah. He said, imagine if you hit a pie with a hammer, he said, that's what your muscles look like, he said, there's bits all over the place. Yeah. Um, and then the, on the lower leg, the fibula, was uh, literally a clean snap in half on both legs. So um, there wasn't much, um, well, there was, there was no structure left in either leg. They were, the, the surgeon said it was similar to a bomb blast. So, um, so you didn't get that and I was stuck you didn't in get to Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still didn't get to see the film. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I remember as I was in the, um, have in mind what happened a couple of months earlier. As I sort of went down, I looked at my legs and, and they were all over the place. And um, <laughs> in a moment of shock, um, I, I reached for my phone. I, I texted my wife, Becky, and I just said to her, like, honestly, on the kid's life, I just said, babe, I'll snap my legs. I'll see you later. Not just that. But it's obviously where I was in shock and it not quite registered yet. Yeah, so she yeah. just walked like, oh, you know, being silly, like, and um, she didn't pay any attention to it. And I was about to get two fire crews in and all these medics and whatnot. And I was in there for six hours. So Becky showed up and I remember seeing her walk through the door and I saw her look at me and I remember seeing her face just go white again. And I, I, God, I felt so bad. Obviously, I didn't mean for that to happen. But... Um, yeah, as if, as if you'd not yeah. put her through enough and, uh, already. You just yeah. want to just, just put the icing on top of the cake for her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we get, we get, we get into hospital and um, that, this happened on the Friday. And then on the Sunday, um, at the time I was 122 kilos. So they had to use ketamine on me as, um, uh, what do you want to call it? Like a pain relief rather than morphine. Okay. Um, so I don't remember the first two days. I started to come round on the Sunday and my right leg was straight. So they put back together and it was in like a big full leg cast and whatnot. Um, but I don't have any re recollection of those first two days. But then I remember the surgeon coming over to me and he said to me, look, Terry, um, uh, my name's Dr. Hargrave. I've put your leg back together. He said, as best as I could. He said, but I've got some news to tell you. And he sort of took a, a pause for 10 seconds or so. And he said, look, he said, I don't know how to tell you this. You're never going to walk again. Um, so I remember looking at Becky, who was to my left. And I remember laughing because it still hadn't registered. I thought he was mucking around. Yeah. So I remember laughing and said, now, nah. I said, I'll be up soon, mate. And um, yeah, I, I can just see you now sat in the bed. Just get, yeah, no, it's fine. 
I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just happened to like, maybe I'm still high from the ketamine, I don't know, but um, I just, I didn't realise um, the severity of it because when it first happened, uh, the question I do get asked is how painful was it? Actually, there wasn't any pain when it first happened um, because I don't know. I don't know if the body, if something's so painful, it sort of switches it off. I think, I you, think. I think there's, there's probably the shock factor. Um, yeah. And to be honest, it would have been the adrenaline keeping you going. It would have would have dulled the pain. Um, but yeah, just a crazy, a crazy turn of events. Now I've seen the videos of your recovery. I've seen some of the videos on Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, I think the first few times that you tried to stand up, um, I think I'm right in saying that you refused to take no for an answer and you wanted to, you wanted well, to get back. Well, what it was, if, I, if I'm being really, really straight with you, is at, at this moment, I was in hospital for three months and um, they had weaned me off the painkillers, which I understand. And um, the ward that I was in was a dementia ward. So um, the people, that, and it was male, but the, the men that were on there at night time, they would get very confused and, you know, it's an awful thing, dementia and they'll be sort of screaming and shouting all night. So it goes back again where I was thinking to myself, I have sleep deprived epilepsy. If I'm not sleeping at night, what's going to happen? Yeah, so all I kept thinking in my head is I have to get out of here, I have to. And um, so I, I said to them, look, look, when can I go home? Like, and they, they said, we can't let you go home because you can't stand. If you can't stand, you can't sort of look after yourself. And um, so I understood that as well. And I said, okay, well, I'll stand. And they said, you can't. They said, it, it won't happen. And I said to them, look, I'll, I'll do it. And um, it's all, it took a couple of days, this sort of argument back and forth. I can do it. No, you can't. I can, I can't. And, um, and I said, look, I said, get a couple of, because the, the guys that were looking after me were army doctors, army surgeons. I said, get, get a couple of your army guys. I said, so they're by my arms. Um, I said, and I'll do it. So, um, yeah, I did. I was, oof. And, you know, when you look at the video, uh, one thing that people can't see is they see me come off the bed, stand for whatever it is, 20 seconds, and sort of make my descent back down again. But um, one thing that people can't see is that to get my legs off the bed to the floor, no Lyros took that hour, hour and a half, because I had no uh, movement. They were pretty much paralysed. Someone had to grab them by the ankle and swing them right the way around to one to the floor, get the other one to the other floor. And where I'd been up, look, my feet up for three months, there was pretty much no blood. There was blood in them, but not properly. Yeah, so yeah, 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 no circulation. Once, yeah. So once they went down, um, there was this, it, it, I felt it like a massive rush of blood. My head went light. I, I fell back to the bed. So I, I couldn't sort of see properly. I couldn't see straight. So then we then had to come up again with the legs, back down with the legs. And it was like a massive, uh, habituation process um but i don't I, I yeah, in, in the video in the video um you you can hear you shouting um mm. was that out of fear or was that kind of you were almost you, you had nothing beneath you what what triggered that kind of that was it panic was it anger um uh, there was a lot of panic there's a lot of panic because um i've been told there's no structure left in my leg and if you think about the mechanics of the body, if your leg's straight, you know, the, the, the force is going to go through 
the bones of the lower leg in a straight line up to your femur, yeah, like to, to your, your upper leg. So when I put my feet down, and then when I started to transfer the weight to me standing, um, I can I, I could feel all the bones and all the muscles literally compressing down like a suspension. Do you see what I mean? Of course. And because it was such an alien um, feeling, I hadn't I'd put no weight on my legs for months. So I felt um, everything provided function inside. And where it felt like it was compressing down and where I was trying to stand, um, I was sort of shouting myself a bit to rev myself, a bit of adrenaline, because I was thinking, if I go for something, Ross, I've got no doubt in my head I'm going to do it. That's just how I am, yeah? So I was thinking, right, I'm going to stand, I'm going to stand. And I've, I've, I've thought to myself, I know that I can do it. But then when I felt how it felt biologically, the doubt in my head was, but can my body do it? Yeah. Yeah, so um, there was a lot of fear. And then once I stood, that was another rush of blood. So my head went and I started to go light head again. I thought, God, if I fall over, it's my leg snapped again. I guess the best way to describe it, I mean, if we look at the astronauts who go to space for however many months and come back, when they're in that zero gravity, when they get off the, the spaceship, they are physically manhandled down the steps because they have no concept of what it's like to walk. Mm. It's, I, I guess in some respect, it's probably very similar the, and, and then the, the rehab that these guys go through to be able to learn to walk again. And I think for something we take for granted, like, my, well, I'd say 99% of us in our lifetime will never experience that feeling. Um, God forbid. And I hope, you know, listeners never have to go through that. But we, we as a listener, we can't, you can't understand that. We, we have an idea of, of what's going on and we can, we can sort of resonate with the fact that you couldn't walk and you couldn't, put pressure through your legs but it's something that i hope people will never have to go through so when all this kind of starts to seem like we're getting better and you're trying to do rehab how on earth did you keep a, a solid mindset to want to get back on the horse and 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 i guess scaringly or, or most dramatically is go back into the gym environment and then continue to to build yourself into a better physique well i think uh, in truth the the positive steps are born from the darker days if that makes sense do you see what i mean so um when Okay, so if we take it to that, that video clip of when I first stood in the hospital, I realised then it was sort of like a, a kick up the arse, if you like, this isn't going to be easy, yeah? I had this mentality at first that I'm going to walk again. Like, what are you saying that for? Yeah, I'm going to walk. And then um, from there, pretty much all day, yeah, my legs were locked in these fixed braces, yeah, so um, that I couldn't move them. But I would um, turn the clips on the sides so that I'd have like 30 degree movement, yeah, and I'd keep on trying to lift the knee to a little bit of a bend, like a tiniest bend. And they'd say, what are you doing? Like, you should be doing that. And I'd say to them, that, I said, I'm going to walk again. Because there was the obstacle, how hard it was to stand, yeah. All right, what's the solution? They have to move. Yeah, if they, if they don't ever move, then I'm never going to move, yeah. So it's sort of born from that. And then once I got home, um, 
okay, I'm going to be as blunt as possible here. Yeah. I couldn't go to the toilet by myself. Yeah. A number one or a number two. I couldn't. Yeah. So I had to have people cleaning me up. Um, I had to have people bring bottles to me, bedpans underneath me, wipe my bum for me. I had to have people clean me. Um, I had to have people literally um, transfer, transfer me from a bed to a seat so they could get me into a sitting position so they could clean my whole body and stuff. And, and at, at the time, being 29, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, all my pride and dignity is gone. Um, and there were times, Ross, I'm just going to be really straight here, there'll be times where I'll just, because I was stuck, once I got home from hospital, I was stuck in a hospital bed at home in my living room for a further two months, yeah. I couldn't do anything with my kids. My boy had just started playing football. I love football, yeah. And um, it was my girl's birthday party. Her, her little friends come round and her dad was in a hospital bed in the, in the living room, not being able to move. Um, and I remember I'd just lay there sometimes and look at the wall. And I'm being honest with you, I'd just lay there and just cry and just look at the wall and think, like, I'm, I'm paralysed, I can't move. And, um, and quite frankly, I just did not want to accept it. I couldn't, so I, I'd have like a home physio come round, and um, and I said to her, I said I don't want you to touch me. I said because I I can feel my own body. I know what feels right for me. Yeah. I said just give me a Zimmer frame, please. So she she brought round a Zimmer frame, and every single day, Ross, I, I, it was like a um, an obsession. Like I'm going to stand up and I'm going to grab that Zimmer frame. Yeah. And I would try like three, four day, times a day, and I would try and I'd hold on to the Zimmer frame and I'd pull myself forward using my arms because I had no strength in my legs and I couldn't transfer 120 kilos up through my arms from a sitting position. I couldn't, yeah. So I'd fall back and I'd cry again and I'd say to him, I'm, I'm never going to walk. But then every time I'd think to myself, I'm never going to walk, that anger would come back. I'd think, I'll sort yourself out to you. You're going to walk. Yeah. And then, do you see what I mean? So the, the positive steps always come from the negative straight away. Yeah, do you think do you think it would have been easy to to quit then? Do you think it do you think in those dark days, do you think it would have been easy to say, yeah, this is fate. I've had my yeah. fair share of luck. This is it. I'm destined and and I've got to adapt now. Do you think it would have been easy to do that? Or do you think no chance? I there was not a, a chance in hell that I was gonna roll over and let this happen. All right, there's two answers to that. There's no way on earth that anything in this on this planet would ever make me give up on anything. Yeah. It's not in my nature. Yeah. Um, if I, again, if I'm going back to my granddad, he was captured as a prisoner of war in the, in, in the Second World War. He was tortured, he was starved, he was beaten, he still come home to his wife. Yeah. Um, I won't ever give up. Yeah, I, I can't. Right. But if I had listened to medical science, if I had listened to the surgeons, and if I'd listened to the physios and whatnot then I would never be in this position that I'm in now. Yeah, because all they kept telling me constantly, you can't, Terry, you're never going to walk again. It's not possible. You've got nothing left in your legs and, and so on. Yeah, so that, um, they always have this mentality of, if someone says to me now, tell you can't do that, it's not possible. I always think to myself, all right, then let's see. Let's see yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that was almost like the, the red flag to a ball. Um, driving force. Yeah, and... It was tough, Ross, but if anyone else is going through some sort of debilitating injury, honestly, I'm such a firm, like, firm believer now, after what's happened, get that area moving. You know, even if it, 
even if you have a month moving your like I said I was moving my knee up by about an inch and dropping it again up by about an inch and dropping it again yeah that took a month the progress weren't quick but it came yeah and then eventually I'll do like a full leg raise you know well, and that's another I want to stress now where, where Terry is to the listeners because Terry's fully mobile you're back training legs again Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I remember the first few first few weeks you came back into the gym, full leg cast, full splints, um, barely able to to walk properly, but you were still in the gym environment, um, and it's absolutely breathtaking. Which is one of the reasons why I wanted to get Terry on the podcast. And it was only the other day I had the brainwave, and I thought, do you know what? Recently, a lot of my clients are moaning, and they're saying that they can't make time. And this was really the high, you know, one of the big factors of the, the episode was to highlight that actually your problems are really quite small. If all you've got to complain about is a child who won't sleep or uh, you can't fit meal five in, you know, those, those issues are so, I'm going to use the word pathetic and they just don't wash when you listen. And when you listen to a story like Terry's who has spent months not being able to walk and, but yet, if Terry can come back from such catastrophic events with a positive mindset, um, that that's what I want to try and highlight is that you really do have no excuse. So Terry, just quickly to finish off, what advice would you give to anyone listening? Um, those people who maybe are on a gym plan or are not fulfilling their life to the full, who are full of excuses. What, what advice would you give to them from someone who's lived well the most horrific one to two years of your life first thing i want to say is that everything's a process yeah and that's one of the things i had to learn the hard way is um naturally i'm quite impatient but everything's a process yeah so what i'm saying by that is um i was never going to get out of bed and just start walking yeah it was a process and i had to sort of keep believing in the process like i said if it's going to take me a month to move my leg two inches it's taking me a month to move two inches but that's still progress yeah so if i follow the process and i move two inches to four inches to six inches and so on yeah then eventually what that means is i'm going to get some form of walking and i I think that um, can be relatable to anything in life you know whether it's weight loss whether it's um weight gain or muscle gain or um doing a qualification or you know or anything absolutely anything. a job um a kids sleeping routine and whatnot it's a process so follow the process step by step and you'll get there um i also think as well is that uh, it's something that my, my granddad always drilled into all of us like me and my siblings you can do anything if you put your mind to it and it's such a um a cheesy saying and it's such an old old saying but I, I i truly believe it you know it is mate it is i say it all the time to my clients i say i wish i could make this process easier for you to understand like it's so so simple if you want it you genuinely will get it um and even so you know even now people just don't understand how simple that concept is um well, i remember um an old boss of mine with Elise, an African lady who, um, her dad was English, her mum was African, she lived in Africa as a child. She had to move over here because um, a political unrest or something in Zimbabwe at the time, yeah. 
and um, she moved over here. She was working in Starbucks as a 17-year-old. By 21, she was running her own company, not in coffee, in like a sales company. I remember her always saying to me, Terry, you could either tune in to radio negative or you could tune in to radio positive. You decide your frequency. Yeah, and she always used to say that. Things like that. There's certain things in life that I, I listen to and they're like little buzzwords or little um, like sentences and stuff. And, I, and it just sticks with me. Yeah. So at least his words are stuck with me. My granddad's words are stuck with me. Another one, I know it sounds funny, but Michael Jackson used to do a song and he used to say, every day creates your history. Yeah. And I always think to myself, God, that's so true. Did you, so wanna, did you want to sing it or perhaps moonwalk now you've got your legs back <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well that's the next step in the process <laughs> it's a process yeah so, but i just think that you it, everything depends on um what you choose to tell yourself in your head and, it, and it's just that if i want to squat um and i think to myself oh god i can't i can't i'm never going to squat ross did you get what i mean if i think to myself all right let's try it by First of all, like, like nothing in my hands, no way. Just getting down and touching my bum off the seat and coming up again. That's the start. Yeah, and then it follows. So in the episode, I just want to sum up that what I want to try and get across is that no matter what you think your problems are, one is always someone who's worse off and, and, and Terry's living proof of that. Um, and also in those darker days, that woke Terry up, as we talked about with the with the potentially the ticket to to his life, um, you know. And I just want to highlight how mentally hardened you can become when you have a belief, and that's something we've just talked about. That when you want something bad enough, um, it really, honestly, is is well within your capabilities. Um, it just requires willpower, determination, and and I think belief. I think you have to believe in yourself. I'd, I'd go as far to say you need a strong. Uh, network around you because I'm sure Terry would agree that without his wife he probably wouldn't be where he is without his kids he wouldn't be where he is um, without those closest to him to continue to help him push forward so guys a really raw episode today I hope you can take something away from this um, if you want to hit Terry up on social or read into his story a little bit more Terry what is your uh, Instagram handle yeah it's Lloyd's like the bank TSL Lloyd TSL. So Lloyd TSL. Do jump over. Um, he's got some. Uh, the, the video that we talk about is on there. Um, but if you are interested, go ahead, give him a follow, um, and you'll see how uh, his journey's progressed and um, just how incredible um, Terry's looking right now. So, guys, Thank you very much. yeah, no worries, Terry. It's been a pleasure. Stay tuned for the next episode, guys, and um, I'll catch up with you very, very soon.